Hello and welcome to the Undead Wookiee Podcast. This is a bonus episode. On this bonus episode, I am joined by the Phantom Galaxy's very own Nathan Bartlebar. And this one was originally due to be released a long time ago. Now, I thought that I had released it when actually I hadn't. But for your delectations, here it is now. So uh, let's jump right in. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. And I am joined by a visitor from a phantom galaxy. The one, the only, clap your hands, stamp your feet, making his Undead Wookiee podcast debut, the one, the only, Mr. Nathan Bartlebar. How the devil are you, sir? I am doing awesome. You, Thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I was just... Uh, I was just out and about uh, with my son. We were coming back from the park, and he was asking me, he's like, oh, well, what podcast is this? And I said, you're going to love this. It's the Undead Wookiee, which he then chuckled for about three minutes <laughs> <laughs> on our way back. So he's uh, he was pretty thrilled. He's like, you got to tell me about it. It's like, okay. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It's really funny. It's like it's like the gag in The Simpsons with the B-sharps. People hear the name the Undead Wookiee, <laughs> and they chuckle first, and it becomes less and less funny as time goes on. <laughs> Well, that's the that's the great part about it. You you don't want to be a joke the whole time. Just, <laughs> just, just initially, like oh, that's cute, and then, you know. <laughs> uh, but there's like there's still people who call you know oh the Phantom Menace. Your podcast is the Phantom Menace. I'm like oh, shut the hell up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, now we are talking. Um, I seem to say this a lot, but it, this is one of my all time favorites. Uh, we are talking near dark from 1987. Um, and getting to rewatch it again was just, I, 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 I sort of come back to this one every couple of years or so. And every single time it's like, this is just so good. It's just such a great, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but, oh, it's just so good. So good. How'd you feel about this one? Yeah, the, a very similar experience in that. I see, like you said, every couple of years I kind of find my way back to it. It's that 80s vampire movie kind of part of the trifecta, I guess, you know, in terms of like, I always kind of think, you know, Fright Night, Lost Boys, and then Near Dark. Uh, I think Near Dark is every bit as good, and, and, you know, we were going to get into it maybe a little better in some ways than those other two. I find I return to those other two a lot more, you know, they're a little bit more like the comfort foods, but it's like you said, you when you go back to it, you're kind of struck by there's a couple of things, but I was definitely struck by how strong it is as a movie and how much it doesn't rely on being a vampire movie, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's the one thing. It never coasts on being a vampire movie. Well, here's the crazy thing. Nobody at any point in this film mentions the word vampire. No, no, not at all. There's never there's not a single mention of the word vampire at all and this is i think if you want to really try and sort of um you know sort of break this film down this is very much um and i hate using this term it's very much it's sort of neo-western horror in 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 in, in sort of every aspect really that you know it, it sort of it draws on that sort of on the western heavily um and it's there is just it's 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 just and there are times in this where it's it's sort of it's almost it's almost poetic as well at times, um, and which we'll get to in a little bit. But of course, this was directed by the incredible 
Catherine Bigelow. She is one of my all-time favourite directors. Um, and this is amazing that this is her first solo uh, film. This is the first, she, before this, she co-directed um, Loveless with William Defoe in 1980, from in 1981. Um, have you come across that one? I haven't seen it. Have you? Uh, no, but I always remember the the VHS cover uh, in the in the video store and thinking that's William Defoe. He was in Platoon. Why yeah. does he look like a really shit Fonzie? <laughs> right. <laughs> Defoe has an interesting like filmography though up through the eighties and the nineties. He was in Body of Evidence with Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yes, the erotic thriller. <laughs> I remember, oh, we're going off on a tangent already, but I remember when they were advertising that movie and selling it to video stores. I was working um, like part-time in a video store at the time, and they would sell it as part of a uh, of a set with handcuffs, candles, and bubble bath. What the fuck? <laughs> to, like, the, to the video distributors, like, yeah, what are they going to do with all that? <laughs> Because, yeah, I can just imagine how bubble bath and handcuffs fit with watch. I, I mean, I suppose you would have to be handcuffed to something to to sit to make through, it through, to make it through body of evidence. <laughs> right. The candles are to burn your eyes out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I don't know where that was going. But yeah, um, Catherine Bigelow, when you look at the quality of this movie, at, and in truth, the quality of all of her movies, but where this sits, right, 1987? Yeah. Like, one of the things I really kind of enjoyed about being able to go back and watch this was just really taking in, like, the filmmaking, like, specifically how this is movie this movie is made and how it sits between sort of the older classical style filmmaking and that style of more aggressive or more sort of visceral action filmmaking that was starting to happen, you know? Yeah. And it's really... They think this speaks to how a lot of the female directors have were and have been and to some extent still are marginalized because the fact that the 80s is dominated by like the John McTiernan's and the and the Jim Cameron's and things like that. And yeah. Catherine Bigelow is not right there next to them because all of her movies are every not only every bit as good, but they're every bit as uh sort of fundamental to the development of this style. You know, she's utilizing this style in a far more cohesive way than say a Michael Bay 10 years later. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's interesting, isn't it? You see Michael Bay and people talk about Michael Bay as this great um, sort of uh, this great action filmmaker. Um, But Catherine Bigelow's films, the quality and the depth of filmmaking and the understanding of film that you can see throughout her films is is second to none. Is second to none. I mean, you know, you know, let's look. You know, what well, you know, Point Break for yeah. a start. Um, Strange Days. It's just oh, it's just criminally forgotten about. At we've times. we've we've texted about this. We're gonna have, we'll, we're gonna have you on Phantom Galaxy to discuss yeah. that one yeah. for sure. That's how another there and her movies. A lot of her older movies are very hard to find, including this one. It, ridiculously so. It's ridiculously a, it's a, so. It's a travesty in a, a lot of ways. You know that I, element of it. I've had to sort of I've got to you know I've had to have an import Blu-ray to get to you know to be able to watch this. You know, but there's no and like even on that there are no special features. There's yeah. nothing. There's I've nothing got a DVD I had for years that I probably got out of a five dollar bin that's now worth two hundred dollars because I don't have it anywhere at all. It's cra- I mean, 
and then yeah exactly the same and i mean like the you look at the hurt locker that she hurt locker is just tremendous filmmaking tremendous filmmaking zero dark 30 zero dark 30 is like being punched in the face watching that film it is so yeah. visceral at times i mean okay she did do k19 the Widowmaker, but we'll kind of skip over that one <laughs> Well, I, I think you could make the case that the direction is still pretty strong in that. There's a, the K-19 K has a lot of issues, but yeah. not all of them are Bigelow's. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and I think the reason I mentioned what Michael Bay is not like to just like shooting fish in a barrel, though it kind of is sometimes, yeah. you know, when people defend Bay, they often make this case, well, look, he's making much more, he's making a specific kind of action, you know, it's very in your face, and there are supposed to be lots of quick edits, and there's supposed to be this different feel and momentum to the movie, and I would argue that Catherine Bigelow uses all the same, not all the same, but similar stylistic flourishes, going after similar things, and getting similar emotions, but she knows how to do it, she doesn't draw attention to it. No. Uh, you'll notice that in Near Dark, she has, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, she has slow motion shots. And early on, she has a aggressively quick editing for events that don't require aggressively quick editing. Mm. Uh, I don't mean that as a as a uh, as a slag. I'm just pointing out, you know. And yet, I don't think she draws attention to it. You feel the emotion, and then you realize why you feel the emotion. Yeah, and I think the one thing that this, you know, Nia Dark certainly has. I mentioned it earlier. You know, there are times that this is sort of. It's it's almost poetic, and like some of the dialogue in this is almost is very very poetic, you know. When they talk about just listen to the darkness, it's almost deafening, and yeah, you, the price of the night and things like that. Yeah, listen, like a... it's far more cerebral. Whereas you know when you're watching this, yes, all those you know all those elements that make up the action genre are there, um, but whereas if you sort of you know lots of sort of you know you know I think there are a number of filmmakers who are guilty of this when they make when they when they sort of they pull into the action sort of genre they go for the loud noises approach to things whereas all of these all of these elements are here but actually they're done in a far subtler way they're far cleverer and they fit with the world that it's in it's you know there's a sense of uh verimilicitude to, to near dark that is believable Whereas when you compare it to, you know, when you look at other films, it's not so believable. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's um, it's quite, it's really interesting. It's, it, it, the way in which that, you know, even that opening, that, op the, you know, the opening to, the, to, to this is very, very much, um, it's almost dreamlike, that opening where you've got, uh, you you got Adam... Uh, is it Pasta? Adrian Pastar. Adrian Pastar. That's right. Adrian Pastar. Yeah. Sorry. Um, you know, you you see him there, just you know, lying in the uh, in the truck of you know in the in the back of his truck, and he's clearly bored, and he's into town. He goes into town, and then he sees May, and it all has this very very fluid dreamlike feel to it. Um, and then you get this moment where they're driving out to some place, and the horse gets spooked, and all those kind of things. It sort of almost floats. It's quite floaty in the feel of it. Um, it's just a brilliant, it's, it's a great, it's a great moment. Um, of course, we mentioned Catherine Bigelow as the director of this. Um, this <laughs> Catherine Bigelow also uh, co-wrote this with a rather interesting fellow. Um, 
gentleman by the name of Eric Red. Uh, do you want to take this one, Nath? Yeah, so, well, I think it's interesting because Eric Red, definitely in the 80s particularly, he has a lot of work that people are going to recognize. And I think that it's it's interesting because a lot of his uh, his filmography, in terms of the stuff that he's written, and he has directed too, uh, has a very sort of aggressive feel to, you know, it, it, it kind of almost particularly highlights a lot of like the toxic toxic masculinity. I think that would be accurate. You know, yeah. uh, the main movie that most people are going to like recognize him for as far as writer goes would probably be the hitcher. I mean, which is oh. almost of a piece with near dark. It has that weird element of, you know, the lonely road and then, and, and, and the dark nights and these ideas of sort of vagrant characters or po- who pose a menace to these kind of younger greenhorn characters that are in a world they're out of their depth. Uh, you know, Blue Steel is another one that he wrote. Yep. Uh, body Parts, again. And you can <laughs> see the kind of trends and themes in this. He also wrote and directed uh, a movie I actually have a soft spot for called Bad Moon, a werewolf movie that I think's a little... It's it's definitely a sort of the... Uh, it got a theatrical release, but it feels for all the world almost like it would be a VOD movie. Yes. Have you seen Bad Moon? I have seen Bad Moon. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's I, I I like it. I don't know if it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. It's, um, do you know what? I, it's a lot of fun. It yeah. is a lot of fun. It's got a great poster. It's got a tremendous it does, poster. Right? And actually, it's got a good werewolf in terms of the design of the werewolf. The way the werewolf interacts in the film, maybe not as great. Yeah. But I think that purely on design, he looks okay. Um, but... He's got he's got all these movies to his name. He did also a movie I actually kind of find is pretty interesting called A Hundred Feet that I think was released as a sci-fi movie, although it has not the feel of a sci-fi movie. Have you seen this one? I have not seen A Hundred Feet. No. It's uh, if Amka Jansen, she has she's killed her husband and she uh, in in defense because he was very abusive, and he she is now on house arrest and his ghost has showed back up at her house and so you have this element that she can't go any further than 100 feet outside the home and yet the home still has his presence there and so you know you really get into almost like an invisible this invisible man we had the last year yeah with um elizabeth moss and you know there's a lot of those sorts of feels to it it's not as good but there's interesting stuff going there but again you have these very sort of aggressive male characters you have a lot of um you know in in these stories there's a lot of uh, familial angst and things like that. And mm. then, you know, as I'm reviewing all this, I'm hearing about, uh, I, I see a little note that Eric read in like 2006 was involved in a case where he drove his car. It says he fell asleep or they believe he fell asleep or bat- blacked out. I think is the way they actually put it. He blacks out, drives his car through an intersection of people, smashes into a bar or a pub and, and, and kills two people in the process. One of which is pinned between his car and the bar itself. Then he leaps out of the car and proceeds to stab himself in the chest, saying, it's time for me to die. So, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you saw the article, too. Yeah. It's something like, I don't want to live anymore. I mean, it's like it's as if he's practicing a scene from one of his films. And it's just insane. And, you know, I think I had the same thought to you is how is he not in jail? I mean, I think he must have convinced people that, yeah, maybe he blacked out. But, um, 
you know, the, the, the art, there's an article that was written and they kind of, uh, you know, they, they write in such a way where they juxtapose his story with lines from his scripts. Yeah. <laughs> some of yeah. which have not been made into films that, that deal with, you know, the twisted metal and, you know, screaming voices. And, you know, it, it's just kind of a crazy sort of considering some of the scenes in near dark, considering some of the scenes in the hitcher, yes. it's a crazy aside that his life eventually takes that has that scene in it for real. Yes. It's, it, I, you know, what I was, it, it, I almost thought it was like some kind of, um, maybe some kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of, I, I'd really go back and think, is this real? Is this, yeah, is this is, more this like a mythic hap- tale? You know, a lot of these older directors have these stories, but nope, this seems pretty real. Yeah, it, it yeah, it happened. <laughs> it happened. Now, the cast for this is tremendous it is just got a brilliant brilliant cast and you got like you said we've got adrian uh pastar as caleb colton uh jenny wright who um what's really interesting i found a making of documentary for this and nobody knew where she went i mean she's still working and i think she's got a credit in like 2017 working on different things and she's done a lot of tv but nobody could contact her for the making of um they think Anchor Bay released like a making of uh, with it, and nobody could find her. Nobody could track her down. She's quite yeah, cool. and I don't see her having anything on her filmography. Uh, like in '98 is kind of where it stopped. Yeah, and then even then, she's got uh, like a short. You know, it's 2007, but that's the last thing. I mean, and then even before that, it's all kind of TV stuff, or you know, the Lawnmower Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you get down to it, the, really, the 90s and the 80s, you know, she's kind of one thing after another is kind of, uh, you know, uh, I Madman. That's kind of where I really remember her from outside yeah. of this film, uh, which is a really I, I think I really like I Madman a lot. I think it's also known as hardcover. Yeah. And um, Young Guns, too. She was in Young Guns, too. I was just looking through her filmography. But you're right. Yeah, I I don't know. her. I mean, she was in St. Elmo's Fire before this film. But um I mostly, you know, near dark is kind of my perception of her. Yeah, yeah, and that's where I know her from, uh, really, you know, more than anything else. Now, we in the, in the cast, we also get a very, very strong Aliens alumni. Oh, this is, and I never quite like honed in on it until the, like this time more than ever before. I thought, oh, this is awesome! Like just how well this works. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got Lance Henriksen um, as Jesse Hooker, and what I love about um, Lance Henriksen is the detail that he, and the work that he put in to create the character of Jesse Hooker. It's just phenomenal. And I'll come back around to it in a bit, but it's just wonderful. Um, and then you get Pil, uh, Bill Paxton, who has uh, a Severin, and he is a tour de force in this. He is just a force of nature in this. And then Jeanette Goldstein as Diamondback. Just phenomenal. Phenomenal. Great casting. Great casting. Um, we got Joshua John Miller as Homer. Um, you got um, Tim Thompson pops up in this. Uh, <laughs> he does. I, was, I always love seeing Tim Thompson. You know, and I mean, I obviously he's Jack Death to me. He's yeah. always a doll man. Or Doll Man, right? Well, and and he was. I also remember him in the first uh, Iron Eagle movie. <laughs> oh, God, Iron Eagle! Do you know? I'm gonna I'm gonna confess something now. 
and I may get pillared for this. I prefer Iron Eagle to Top Gun. No, you're not. I absolutely. I was about to say the same thing. I absolutely do it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because it's the better movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I even like Iron Eagle five hundred and fifty, whatever it was. It's... There were five Iron Eagle movies. <laughs> I think there's hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. Well, so something interesting. I don't want to bring it up because just because you've mentioned Tim Thomas and being in this movie, and I see it's got. So was this released? I something. Movies sometimes fly completely under my radar, and I don't know how this one did. I remember being made, but was it ever completed? Be- I don't think it was. Bring me the head of Lance Henriksen. I don't know if it was it's ever on- completed. I don't know. Right. So it's on the filmography. I remember hearing about it. And the plot is when 80s B-movie icon Tim Thomerson wakes up one day to realize the acting roles are not coming his way anymore, he sets on a quest to find his former co-star Lance Henriksen to... Well, kill him yeah. to discover his secret. Well, I'd, I had to click the rest of the IMDb <laughs> thing there. It gets more than he bargained for in the process. That that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I think it might be something that may have sort of unfortunately been uh, dealt an unfair kind of blow. Can, it, yeah, it, it, it does seem a shame because the cast has like, you know, it's got um, Adrian Barbeau in it, and I think it had other names at one point. You know, it was one of those kind of projects much like you know bruce campbell keeps trying to get that like my name is bruce sequel off the ground it, yeah or the next bubba hotep movie they kind of like keep getting talked about but never actually made yeah but i i thought that was interesting that that was in his filmography yeah. but and he doesn't have a lot of screen time you almost get the idea that some of the screen time might have been cut but he's, he's yeah great. yeah he's he's a great you know and he sort of he's just there he just like like you said he's kind of cut because his character is just kind of there and then he pops up and then disappears and then he pops up and then he disappears again um but yeah this is just such a good cast and do you know some of the stories about lance henriksen in terms of like um how he prepared for this role not not as much now the one thing i do know about lance is that he didn't really start his career or have his career renaissance until later in life like really around this time you know that as far as acting goes, he's still relatively new to it, I believe, right? Like, he hasn't been doing it for that long at this current point. You know, he's done, yeah, I mean, at this point, he's done Aliens, he's done Terminator, but he was just sort of, you know, he was definitely discovered later on. Yeah, and I mean, he popped up in uh, Omen, Damien, uh, Damien, yeah, in the Omen 2. Um, but he's very, very much a method actor. And um, the one thing that, like, I love about when he's really on on you know really into the character those nails yes. of the character and what he did was he went and had acrylic nails put onto his fingers and then he went home and cut them with a set of pliers and trimmed them down to give them that really elongated dirty look for them well, uh, that's just- Thing that's interesting because when you see those things, they don't look like normal vampire nails. You almost have to get a couple looks to be like, "What's going on with his hands?" Yeah, and he sort of almost. And there are times where he's like got them sort of. They're placed almost like Nosferatu at times. They're all yes. and he lost a tremendous amount of weight um, for this film because he's quite a big guy. He's quite a tall guy. Uh, he dropped down to like hundred and forty pounds um, to the point where you could see his chest bones. Um, he looks incredibly gaunt, and he 
grew his hair and the ponytail that he has uh, at the back, he dipped it in tar because <laughs> his character and it's and it, you don't get like masses amounts about the background for these characters for, for the for the vampires. But he, he hints at, you know, he said there's a great line in it. Well, I fought for the South and we lost. Um, so these characters have been around for like nearly 100 odd years. And he is he, he talks about in the Anchor Bay uh, making of talks about like the backstory for the character of Jesse Hooker. And the backstory is that he was in the Jesse Hooker was in the Confederate Navy. And there was a battle on the Delaware and his ship got pounded into, you know, oblivion. And there were bits of, you know, um, bits of like wood and mast and everything else just uh, just shredding people. And the cat, you know, the, the, the crew were all pretty much dead and the ship is floated into like the marshes and he's lying there dying and he's looking around and these like shadow type creatures like these harpies descend on the ship and start eating the the dying crew and one of the harpies sees uh jesse hooker's character and like his chest is like is like open and he's dying slowly and this creature takes pity on him and turns him into a vampire um and that's and he and he created that backstory just to you know to, to sort of give it more detail and on the inside of his coat um, he pinned, he sewed, he wears like a long uh, grey trench coat throughout the film. He stitched um, a flag, um, a Confederate flag that was from the ship, supposedly from his own, from the ship that he was in. And he remained in character pretty much the entire time. And when it came to filming, he, the rest of the cast flew down. He drove to where the set was. And the entire time he didn't wash, so he looked really, you know, he had, you know, he looked. And he murdered people all the way down. Well, here's the character. thing: this is what he did. He picked up a hitchhiker, <laughs> and was and was just like really freaking this guy out. He wanted to try and get this guy <laughs> to like freak him out as much as he could, and to the point where this guy just couldn't wait to get out of the car with him, because he just embodied the character. You know. So, yeah, and we talk about, we mentioned Catherine Bigelow being sort of, you know, even though she's had accolades and won awards and everything, you know, there's still that element of being underrated. Like, when you're this good, you should be this revered, you know, and yeah. it's not, the, and Lance is another guy, like, another person like that, that's oh. like, he's he's under, we, people know he's great, but he's still undervalued, even even today. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely, and, you know, orig he was going to be the original Terminator. He was going to be the original Terminator before the part was given to Arnold. Um, and again, he got very much into the method of it. Um, and like, it's, it, you know, the, so you think the character would have been more like the, you know, um, Pat, uh, what's it? Who was the T, the, what's his name? Yeah, the T-1000. I yeah. was just thinking that. It's like sort of like, you know, if he couldn't be that Terminator, he should have been the T-1000. Yeah, he was going to be more like Robert that. Robert Patrick, but come on, can you imagine? Yeah. So he's just absolutely fascinated and when the script was first coming around, all these guys got cast in it, uh, all the guys from Alien, and they didn't know it, that each other was cast in it, except for, like, Paxton and Lance Henriksen, because they lived near each other, and Bill Paxton sent him over the script. Uh, and they were both like, we've just got to do this film. So it, it's just fascinating. And the entire time, 
um, Henriksen and Bill Paxton would like egg each other on and stay in character the entire time. Um, and there's well, another. There's another incident. No, sorry, God, what were you going to say? No, no, you could go, go for it. There's another incident um, where they got in the car and they were going to visit Tombstone, but they stayed in costume and <laughs> they got pulled over and they totally freaked out the like the traffic cop who sort of almost went for his gun at one point because Henriksen was freaking him out so badly. And in the end, he just got in the car and drove off. Which That's is awesome. insane. It's insane. <laughs> it it is. And I think what's interesting though is, you know, you have these three, like you mentioned, from aliens, and yet, you know, when they were on alien, they have they have great chemistry here, but that doesn't really come from aliens, right? Because Lance Henriksen's character was really for the majority of the time that those two other actors are in the film. Yeah. He's at odds with them. They don't trust him, you know. He doesn't he's not really interacting with them much and he's isolated. So it's not as if someone looked at this as, oh, you guys had such great chemistry together on Aliens. Let's come over here and do this. But they, they're they so interesting that the, almost one of the problems with Near Dark – and it's not, it's not so much a problem with this film, but from a kind of critical standpoint, you realize that those three uh, – Homer, to some extent, I feel like he's also – he's very underutilized or underrealized. Yes. They, they suggest so much. I am not a fan of usually of of seeing a movie and then immediately oh I want to see the the origins of how this character came to be. I don't want to see that usually. Yeah. But these three are so interesting. What you said about Henriksen, it's so clear he I mean not that exact story that's fascinating, but you can tell he has something in mind because he just exudes I've been places, you know. Yeah. I've got a t- if you had an you know, you want to hear him talk more. He has the weirdest comparisons to things when he tells that girl that her skin is as soft as a preacher's belly that's yeah. one of the weirdest things i've ever heard how and it's like you always want to go oh so you've oh you've yeah so you've you've, <laughs> you've eaten the preacher okay okay and like bill paxton's and character that's, that only comes about if you know he's a vampire I don't yeah know absolutely earlier. <laughs> absolutely i mean like bill paxton's character hints at what he says about uh remember the fire we started in chicago yeah. Which is the hint of like, the, it was 1871? Right, the, and you get the idea that Goldstein is not as old. You know, she mentions, oh, there's the side of the road where you found me. Yeah. You know, where you where you, you got me, but, I, but, it, but it's been long enough that no one really remembers exactly. And they just give such a, and we, we'd started to talk, I don't know if we've actually even covered exactly what the plot of this movie is <laughs> yet. <laughs> But, Look, if it was released in 1987, if you haven't seen it or you don't know yeah, what we're talking about, true. why are you listening to a podcast about me at That's very, that's very true. But the, you know, the the um, Caleb, you know, the pastor character, and yeah. it's something really quickly about him. Like, obviously, I think a lot of people might recognize him later on from like Heroes and things like that. Yeah, you know, and just a few of the other um, projects he's done. But he has a very interesting sort of presence here in this movie, particularly as is related to them. I almost get – I don't know if you, you got that. He He's playing Greenhorn pretty well. You know, he's playing very sort of tempered and timid uh, yes. and not quite sure of himself to the point he almost has a Lucas Haas sort of vibe. The, the latter-day Lucas Haas, not Lucas Haas of 1987, but yeah. you know – uh, like when he's in movies later, he has that kind of very timid affectation to him. Yes. And um, 
And, and it's also very weird. That opening scene, like you say, it starts – the movie just starts out bang out starts, right? Yes. It's uh, – he is – his friends are checking her out. He's with her within like a drop of a hat. Uh, but that's a really strange scene. I think we are already obviously assuming like, okay, in the scenario here, she's the vampire. You know, we kind of have figured that out if yeah. you know the movie's about vampires at this point. And yet – so you're you're kind of expecting the menace to come from her, but in a real world sense, it's pretty strange when he's just like, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you to meet a friend of mine," or what, you know, come on. And there's a great then, line where he where she says about, uh, I think he says about uh, taking a bite. I think, or she yeah, says about taking yeah. a bite, and it's like, Argh! yeah, she mentions that. So you're focused on her, she being the danger, but in real world terms, you're like, she's in the car with him. He's just like, he takes her out. He takes her out to clearly this kind of empty like area near a barn and he gets out and grabs a lasso <laughs> yeah know? he's like you're really going to enjoy this and he's like what i don't think that's probably the best first date i would say not particularly it's late at night and you're like it's the middle of the night you're like okay wait do you see what i've got and then even <laughs> even the jesting part where he's like oh the horse ran off so let me lasso you you know i like yeah. he's that he's that green that he has no idea what he's doing I he's mean, so totally out of his league i have a general rule about sort of getting in cars with people who either have lassos right um, or a boot or a trunk as you guys across the pod would call it that contain a shovel quick lime gaffer tape or other kind of restraining implements. I generally just stay away from those kind of people. Yeah, and you never answer the question, does this smell like chloroform? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's just, it, it's very interesting, but I think they do an interesting job there of setting up him against these other three characters. But don't, they are so interesting that I want to see them in the film more, or doing more, because because of the fact that the vampire part is so played down yeah. to some extent that their characters kind of keep changing because Jenny Wright obviously kind of does, you know, she's more, she's more ambivalent about the murder than the rest of them, but she clearly enjoys being a vampire yes. to some extent. Uh, and then when she meets, you know, she's been living this life, they're living this life and we're not sure how bad they really are at the start. Mm. But I think what's very interesting is you can almost have this as almost a, a serial killer film Without the vampire well, element, because they aren't simply doing this to survive, they're they're even more vicious than the Lost Boys. You know, they 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 are they're still kind of killing for fun, mm. but they really get into this. They're using this idea that we have to feed. What they do in that bar is completely uncalled for. Oh yeah, even if you have to eat. <laughs> and I mean, like the one of the one of the notes that I wrote down actually is that you you know you got those you, you get this this scene where they go out to go out to feed. And you get that scene where you get Homer lying, you know, as, as sort of fake that he's been hit, but hit, hit by a car, and his bike is there, and the guy pulls over to check on him, and like he, he attacks him, and then you got Bill Paxton's character all dressed, spruced up, and the two girls pull over, um, and then you've got um, Diamondback and Jesse, and they're in the car, and they pull, they pick up the hitchhiker, and then it turns out it's a robbery, but actually. When you see the pair of them in there, they really—they are—they're—they're they're, you know quite easily two serial killers who are out hunting at that moment in time, and they are—they are—they're looking for their prey, and that you can see that sort of you know to get all criminal minds on it, they're like, like enabling each other to do it, 
You know, they are that killing pair. They are that couple that go and stalk their prey. And it's it's it's, it's fascinating. It's boring and it's so well done. And you never see anybody, you never see those people getting eaten. You never see anybody getting yeah. eaten in that. It's, it's, well, and that's it's so part. good. It's it's not the it's not even the vampirism part. It's that killer part. It's a lot of it's at that uncomfortable moment. You know, when he just closes the thing, says, "Oh, you know, the amount of time this is going to take is the same amount of time you're going to be alive." You know, uh, yeah. That that kind of very imposing. There's no reason to do this. This this is going to put you in far more danger and in far more uh, proximity to the law than just taking somebody out back and biting them in the neck. You yeah. know. Yeah. And what, what's also interesting is Pazar, who clearly still refrains from killing anyone at this point, it's weird because it's after that scene where he really starts to kind of like bond with them <laughs> in a yeah. weird sense. It's like the scene is bad as they can go. And now he's starting to be friends and you're like, this is kind of weird. Well, it's like the sort of, well, you know, it's like when you talk about sort of him being that green and... It's a great, you know, to get all like film theory, you, you, this is a great example of like Strauss's uh, theory of binary opposites. Yes. Um, and that actually, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I'll probably come back to this in a little bit. But one of the things that Lance Henriksen talked about, about the film and what, one of his takes on it, and it's, it's very, very, you know, clear. It's a film about world weariness that they've been around forever and killing is not a problem they've seen everything they're just on the road constantly and you can see that they're a little bit beaten up they're a little bit tired they're a little bit worn you know the edges are well worn whereas sort of you know Pazdar's character is so green he's so naive about it the word everything is new to him um and it's like almost like a slow seduction of evil for his character. And that actually, if it wasn't for that moment where he inadvertently finds his family, he would quite easily become one of them. I think so, yeah. You know, sort of he, on that pathway. Yeah, it's that seduction, isn't it? You know, it's... Um, they, they, this film is so layered. It's so layered. And I mean, like, on one hand... This is a very, you know, you know, it's also a film about addiction. Um, and you could probably look at it from particularly from the 80s point of view is that it has that sort of element of addiction, to, you know, about what happens when you become addicted to it. And, you know, you look at that scene where he is, you know, where, where he's turning and he needs to feed and he ends up like, crawling back to me who in some ways you could sort of look at it like that you know when he's he's crawling back to me because she's his dealer she's you know you know she's also an addict she's his dealer she is his enabler um and then yeah, it kind gets... of works for any kind of addiction you know even even that person who's in a bad relationship or with the kind of bad person you know a person that isn't healthy for them and yet they have that feeling of i have nowhere else to go you know that yeah. kind of plays into it too yeah and you know and the way that like his stomach is hurting and he's sweating and you know and even when he's trying to get a bus ticket home yeah uh, and he ends up getting pulled over by the cop yeah uh, can, look, let's talk about that for a second because 
in the tone, the, the, this movie has such a, uh, particularly in the early parts, right? Like you mentioned, it's like a dream because it's ticking through the paces so quickly, right? Yeah. He is bitten and abducted so fast it almost makes our head spin. And the movie is not slowing down. And then suddenly it does start to slow down, even in the length of its shots. And then you have this scene that you would think the movie wouldn't have time for. And yet it goes through a good five minutes of what, of him trying to get that bus ticket, right? Like, yeah. And then being – Troy Evans too, the guy who pulls him over. Has he ever played anything other than a cop for the past 60 years or so? No, I, I think – but he's looked the same. He's looked – yeah, because I always think of him from The Frighteners. I mean yeah. – loads of other movies um you know and and he's I, I like him in pretty much everything i've seen him but he's always you look at his uh his credentials and it's always officer this lieutenant that he was in nice yeah. ventura pet detective yeah 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 and he's always and, he, and you're right he looks exactly the same the minute you see him and it's probably not surprising or coincidental that like all the little clip photos if you click on near dark on imdb and other places it's the shot of him next to pastar next to troy Evans. yeah 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 but but i think that scene does just what you said like it slows down to show the desperation like he could he can't go back because he's been inducted to this not fully but enough that the other world is closing off to him which is probably what addicts feel right like you're being drawn in i can't go back and that's why i go forward yeah and also like you know if you look at like like um like the crimes that they commit it's all to feed their addiction you know the you the the murders the you know the the you know that bar scene i'm gonna come into that in a second but but that it's to feed the criminality you know that, that element of criminality shows the links with addiction and what people will do to get their fix it's um it's 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 you know it's a really interesting take um and it layers the film up nicely yeah and they're also excessively destructive uh meaning you know that these yes. crimes they're they're literally they're not burning bridges but they're burning barns and everything else they're doing things that they that almost specifically so they can't ever come back here at least not soon you know yeah. at one point there's a there's an elderly uh uh, a guy at the desk at one of the hotels, yes. the clerk that says, I've seen you before. And he's like, I come around every 50 or 60 years. It's as if, you know, they they want to make sure they're burning that that they are they're forcing themselves down this vagabond lifestyle that, yeah. that always goes forward and never goes back. Well, they're almost like, um, you know, they, they, what's really interesting is they are this completely dysfunctional, um, psychotic family. And like, yes, yes. For them, family is everything. It's absolutely everything at the co- almost and in the end to the cost of their total destruction. It is everything, and 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 they're totally sort of like itinerant, aren't they? And it's that idea that no matter what goes on, they stay together. And they try to they try to keep the family there together as much as possible. Um. You know, and it's sort of, and then when it all unravels by bringing the outsider in, when May brings in the outsider, that's where it all starts to fall apart. It's um, it's 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 such a layered and cleverly do- and subtly done. It's never sort of um, right on the nose. 
yeah, and I think when it is on the nose, it's it's sort of purposefully so. Uh, an example being like later in the movie, and I think it's interesting. Um, one thing I do want to talk about, and I, we kind of started talking about, was the pacing of the film and like uh, that editing at the very beginning of the film was super quick. You know, yeah, like quick in such a way that most movies, including Cameron's movies, were not edited like that at the time. You know, no, that's no. almost a Michael Bay quickness of like. And mostly because of what the movie was about at that point, right? This is just, this is just uh, Caleb and May, and it's back and forth in the car, and it's almost lightning quick. Like yes. they sometimes he's not finished his sentence before it's on her face again, and then vice versa. Yeah. And it creates, and and I'm I'm sitting there thinking, why is this so quick? Like, you know, the, it, it's editing it, and it's because it's creating this kind of nervous energy, right? Like you feel really, I did anyway. Yeah. You feel really nervous and anxious in those opening scenes. Uh, because there's an uncertainty, we don't quite know exactly who's who's who in this scenario. But that quick cutting goes on. I would say it doesn't really get quicker than a couple of of seconds until you have him staggering home. You yeah. know, the first long tracking shot you get is him staggering across that field. And from that moment on, the shots get kind of gradually and gradually longer. They really start to get longer when he meets that family. Yes. That, that, like you said, of the vampires. And then you get the lingering shots on them. And it's almost when things slow down for him, when he's in that van laying on his back and suddenly they're all there sleeping, it's like then the shots get longer. And it's it's very interesting how emotionally she's woven that pacing into the film. It, it And then the Tangerine Dream score helps a lot, oh. you know. Creating that ambiance, and you hear moments from like, oh, that's almost like Blade Runner, or that's almost like Legend, and yet, uh, I know Blade Runner was Vangelis, but it has those 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 uh, kind of tints to it, you know. Well, there's that and... sort of elongating of the notes, and like, yeah, yes. and that's what this, and, and and that's what sort of like synthwave music kind of does, is it creates in that sort of like almost sort of floaty dream like nightmarish kind of scale, it the elongated notes drag out the time as well yeah and so the elongated notes with the quick pacing particularly in the beginning it's such a nice dichotomy and yet as she goes along she really starts to build in like we talked about doesn't feel like a vampire movie feels very much like a western yeah. uh some of the shots are even reminiscent of like a of a not as long but of a terrence malick like badlands you know there oh, were moments yeah. when i got some of the badlands feel but then as you get towards the end of the film, she really – you talk about on the nose. You almost get very like high noon, like when he goes after his well, that ending on that horse. <laughs> that ended – you know, the, the, that final showdown with Severin is right out of a Western. He, but it's so great because he rides in on that horse. What did he expect to do? He's knocked down like instantly. Yeah. Well, the fact that the whole, you know, the whole he rides into town. You got, and what I, I, you know, I think one of the unsung heroes of this film is the DP um, uh, Adam yes. Greenberg. Uh, I mean, who, of course, he, you know, he did. Uh, he was the the DP of Terminator, um, and you know, what I love about it is when he talks about sources of light. There's some brilliant lighting in this. There's some, yes. you know, there's some wonderful lighting, and that silhouette as he wa- and this is a, there's some great silhouette moments in this film. But when he's riding in, and he's got, you know, he's got the cowboy hat on, and he's and there's a great silhouette of him, and the street is empty except for Bill Paxton's character stood in the middle of it. But I love the fact that the horse takes one look at this and goes, "Fuck this, you're on your own," and throws him and legs it. There's no sight. That horse is like, "I ain't staying around here. You can fight this vampire on your own. I gotta stay." Well, I'm not dull. Right. And that's the, but isn't, no, you think about it, it goes back to the Greenhorn thing. 
he knows in the very beginning of the film that the vampires are spooked by horses. Yeah. And yeah. he decides to ride a horse into battle against vampires. Wow. And he With apparently so... no plan whatsoever. No. He hasn't even got a gun. He's he got nothing. Not that it would do any good. It's not but... like Wilford Brimley with exploding arrow tips oh. and hard target on a horse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, that, uh, I mean, that entire scene, um, you know, from like the moment he rides it on the horse. But then when we get into that and that, that showdown, where he runs him down with the truck and Paxton's char- character, Severin, climbs back up onto the bonnet of the of the car and he's completely mashed to a pulp the <laughs> you know his face is hanging off i mean and for a lot of posters as well that image of his yeah. sort of ripped up face and he's punching a hole through so the end awesome when he does that it's very much you know it's very terminator very it, very it terminator is, yeah. and, you can, you can... and he's he's channeling hudson too kind of at that point oh yeah ever in the film yeah and it's very, very Terminator. And of course, you know, like we just said, Greenberg was the DP on Terminator and Paxton is having his Terminator moment. And it's so well done. And what an explosion. What an explosion when that th- when that truck finally goes up. And the touch of the spur landing yeah. is, 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 is brilliant. It's just absolutely brilliant. It's a and great the- scene. It is. And the thing I love about the explosion and that whole scene, because as we pointed out, the movie doesn't really overemphasize the vampires to the point that something I just didn't quite completely notice. I mean, you know it, but when you kind of become cognizant of it is the fact that on all the other vampire movies, mo- almost every single one of them, particularly in the 80s, when they were realizing what they could do with the effects, there's no transformation scenes. No. There are no transformation scenes. There's no makeup to speak of. When Paxton pops up with his head mashed in, that's when you suddenly realize, wait, this is the first part where you've had anything resembling a creature, and this is only because his body is getting super abused right now. Yeah. You know, you, they, they look a little sooty at other times when they get burned, but you know, it's not until this point that you kind of recognize there's no bat wings. There's no, there's not even any kind of mu- mutating of the forehead or the ears. You know, there's not even teeth really, you know, no. uh, you just never see any of that. And I think that while that works in other movies that it, it wouldn't really work here or it would make, it would make the movie feel very different. It would this would start to look much more like John Carpenter's vampires. Yes. I'm not slagging that movie. I'm just simply saying, you know, that they they're they're laying that to the side, and I think that the fact that they they make a decision to continually lay it to the side is smart, and yet they know they have to have touches of the supernatural, and those touches later, particularly when um uh, when Homer catches on fire, oh. I mean that's '80s effects, but it still looks cool. But that explosion is neat because I don't know if it's intentional. I assume it's intentional. You have the explosion and then you have what looks like almost like a supernatural sort of uh, flare up at the top of that explosion, yeah. right? Yeah. That is, this is bat, bat out of hell as he's on his way out. He sort of ha- leaves one kind of weird, almost the same kind of light up you expect to see when Godzilla is about to fire his blast yes. off in the middle yeah. of like a dust cloud. It's like that it doesn't look normal, you know? And I thought that was such a nice touch because it doesn't feel like a natural explosion. Yes. Yes. Now, 
we've mentioned the final showdown and that wonderful truck scene. Um, let's talk about that bar, the bar scene. And it is, it's, there is, from the wonderful silhouette of them all appearing on the hilltop with that saucer light just lighting them from the, highlighting them all. And then from the moment that they walk into that bar, it is a Bill Paxton tour de force. It is just incredible. And if you ever needed a lesson on how to pick a fight in a bar, watch this film. <laughs> <laughs> he's got some amazing lines. My, fa- I did chuckle when he's talked. You know what he says about uh, you're the one about Buffalo Bill, and he dips yeah. his chin into the guy's beer, and he's just so antagonistic the entire time. It's just it's it's an amazing scene. Amazing scene. How, how, what do you think? Talk. Give me your thoughts on this scene because I, you know, I love, I love it. But I, you know, give, give me your thoughts on this one. I think it's. I mean, it really is sort of the centerpiece of the movie. I think in 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 one specific uh, uh, term, in the sense that this is the moment when we actually realize exactly what the stakes are. No pun intended for Yay! the rest, for the rest of this movie. You know, you realize what we're dealing with because at this moment. This first off, when they don't transform, yeah, that's when you realize that we aren't playing by the vampire rules. That this is when you realize this is not fundamentally a vampire movie. Because honestly speaking, the first time I watched this movie, I was waiting for them to turn. I was waiting for them because we hadn't quite seen them completely feed, right? Like they, yeah, this is going to be their showcase moment. This is going to be the dust till dawn. I mean, dust till dawn wasn't around at that point, but yeah. you know, or the Lost Boys, or even Fright Night. This moment when. The what the extent of what he's messed up with is going to be revealed, and it is exactly that. But they do it all through the psychology of letting these three characters or four characters, <laughs> because when Homer's over there bopping along while they're slitting this woman's neck, is entirely disturbing. And what's happening on the other side of the room is Paxton is still playing his shtick, and it's yeah. so disturbing. One of the most disturbing elements is how iconic. All of those people in that room are still after her throat is slit. Yes. Like and to the point that you're almost like, is the bartender in on it? But in real life, you expect that that might be what actually happens, right? Yeah. You're oh, frozen it's, it's in a moment of an oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. But you're still wiping the bar. Yeah. <laughs> you're the guy that's still playing the jukebox and you're like, hey man. <laughs> you oh know? yeah. Yeah. This You'd is... expect people running for the doors and yet everyone is frozen like a deer and the headlights in it, uh, Paxton chuckling along and making jokes makes that scene more tense. Uh, the stuff he's doing is funny maybe in retrospect, but it just makes it more it, – it's tightening the coil. And the, the, his eyes are so you – can, you can see this weird feverish joy in his eyes that, you know, is not – It's it, and that's one thing I've always enjoyed about Paxton's performance is he could really give you this sort of off-kilter character that could either be for humor – or could be for tragedy. I mean, look at him in Frailty, where he's oh. playing a guy who believes for every bit of the world that he's doing good, you know, that he's a righteous character. And, uh, man, it's, it's such a shame that he's gone. But he's so yeah. good, and you're right. That scene, it allows Goldstein and Hendrickson to kind of hang back and, and, and be sinister. But he's carrying that whole thing. And you look at, we talked about Red Eric Red writing The Hitcher. It's like... Some of, and I love Rucker Howard, some of what Rucker Howard does in that movie 
you almost wonder what it would be like if Bill Paxton had been the hitcher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, completely. I think what we get here is you get Lance Henriksen is so menacing, so menacing. And Jeanette Goldstein is, uh, you know, her diamond back is so cold and so calculating. And then you've got Bill Paxton, who is just out there. He is completely <laughs> off his... He's out of his mind. But you know what? I, one of the other things that I love in this, do you know who the band were on the jukebox that were playing during the whole scene? Oh, come on. I, was, I don't think I was paying attention. I should have been. It's I was the, too worried. It's the cramps. Is it? Okay. It's the cramps. And they're just a wonderful psychobilly You're right. band. And they're playing Fever. Um, right. Which is just, you know, you talk, you know, again, we goes back to this idea of addiction and this idea that it's this something that's just burning inside them that they've got it, you know, that, that they that they need to satisfy this, this this sort of fever, you know, that's inside them and they're going to do it. But it, what a brilliant choice of music. Cause I, I love the cramps. They're great. Yeah. But that, this that... is a scene, too, where it made me realize and no offense, you it made me realize that this is kind of. They're finding a way to really do the Euro trash vampire thing, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Euro trash vampires. Like, it almost seems seemingly why that Western mythology is almost m- melded in because Fright Night goes for the more classical vampires in a sense, right? You know, they're still yeah. playing those rules. Lost Boys is, you know, the, you got a little bit of that, but really what you're dealing with. I mean, your vampires here are a little bit closer to the kinds of things psychologically speaking, that we were dealing with in movies like The Hunger, you know, yeah. and and things of that nature, like you pointed out with the addiction. And it's sort of interesting. It's like, okay, there's your Euro trash minus your Euro, but you still got your trash. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, like, it's sort of... And Jeanette Goldstein actually talks about this in her, with, you know, about the creation of her character. And the reason why she had, like, the, the dyed peroxide hair is that, you know, if you think that these characters are, you know, her character is poor, and, you know, she's, you know, what you do when you've got nothing else on your hands and you're poor, you you know, you you don't, you just, you know, there's a bottle of peroxide, you dye your hair. But then you're on the road all the time, so you don't get time to top it up properly. So that's where the roots come through. And that's where, like, that idea of, like, that trashy element of them comes through. And you are right, you know, I mean, in some ways you could probably say you would, this wouldn't be out of place with something like like The Hunger or, you know, even something Jess Franco would do. I mean, it would be badly done if it was in a Jess Franco movie. <laughs> right. But, but it, I think that bar scene has that seediness, that that dangerous kind of feel. You know, when you see that throat slash, it's very different than the blood in a vampire movie. Oh, yeah, completely. And, I mean, even when he uses his spurs, Bill Paxton uses the spurs to cut the yeah. guy's throat. And, I mean, some of the lines in this, you know, you get the classic finger-licking good. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yes. and like when he takes the and he's got the sunglasses on and he's going, ooh, it's just he is just so off. It's just such an insane scene. But then, you know, don't you at that moment in time, they've crossed the line and they've gone from being the antiheroes. They are the villains in this. And, you know, it it's such a fascinating character study. But yet we still, I still found myself rooting for them. You know, when we come to that, um, you know, the incredible shootout um, in the hotel. Yes. Room. 
well, doesn't this all feel very, when you're watching this, you're sort of like, okay, well, you can kind of see, there's two things here. Partly, you can see this is, I mean, people may disagree, this is kind of a, 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 later when we have Rob Zombie doing the Devil's Rejects, right? Is what's happening here that different? Well, absolutely not. I mean, I think it's yeah. fair to say that um, Rob Zombie is a cinematic kleptomaniac when it comes to, to, to his <laughs> films. Um, you know, and look, and I say this, I've said this a lot. I am a Rob Zombie apologist um, for, you know, <laughs> for whatever that's worth. But there are, you know, but... Huge. Yeah, and I didn't mean that to slag on Zombie. Yeah. Just sort of making those connections. Because Absolutely. I think you would look at that movie. It's being, a, you know, a lot of things it's doing are sort of picking up the near dark thread and moving on to the next step with it in some ways. Not, not that I think that's a better movie than this, but those, those threads that are that story that's happening in the bar is not the only thing near dark is about. And it is kind of the main gist of what, uh, devil's rejects is about though. Yeah. I mean, that scene though, what I love about that, the fact that the bullets aren't really the dangerous bit, it's the sunlight streaming in yes. and Adam, you know, Adam Greenberg's cinematography in that, um, is just, tremendous and even when bill paxton blasts the deputy with the shotgun and the yeah. light hits him and blows him backwards and he's on fire it's it's a brilliant action set piece and i mean this isn't a big budget film mind this is i think you know the budget on this was five million um and it didn't make his money and back. you could see that really up on yeah which is a shame you can see that up on the screen though i think is that, that these are really well done action scenes in the sense that they are kinetic and they're visceral and they get you excited, you know? Absolutely. You know, and, and this is what's something that I sort of, I, I love is the fact that you can, you can make something that is as visceral and as engaging and at times, you know, outrightly arty um, for this, for that, for that amount of money. And I mean, don't get me wrong, five million is is a lot of money, but it's not avatar money. You know, it's not billion. We're not talking a billion dollar budget here, but in no. so many ways, it's far more engaging. There is something more creative. There is something more. There's something that engages you throughout. Well, I think we've even, you know, uh, we've talked about this before, Hugh, that essentially some many times almost almost unfailingly so yeah in, in fact you know cameron who at one point was married to bigelow maybe the only exception to this I, i'm not saying that all his films are masterpieces he might be the only one who still tries to to squeeze every little bit he can out of however much money he's got right if yeah. you see a 200 million dollar movie you know that money might not have gone into the script but you can usually see it up on screen yeah but I think everyone else, you know, they, I think, and and actually, you know what, the, the, actually the same is true of Cameron, because if you look at Terminator and Aliens, which were sufficient, were significantly lower budget films than later Avatar and things like that, you could see the need for ingenuity coming up, right? Absolutely. Like, a lot of the things we like about this movie probably happened because from the very beginning, it was understood that this was only going to be accepted as a low budget movie. Yeah. You know, the reason they get to do that kind of, dangerous almost kind of uh to the level that it is for this kind of action movie kind of transgressive like bar scene and and to have a movie that's basically about these kind of you know great looking people normally but looking like you know ragamuffins for the majority of this <laughs> yeah. film is that they they're 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 they've promised to bring it in under this kind of budget and so those things we like about the fact that the vampires aren't 
full of crazy special effects that the action scenes are very coherent and scaled down so that one explosion feels amazing as opposed to 17 explosions, you know, yeah. uh, all of those things are happening because the budget is low, not sort of in spite of it, most likely, you yeah. know, and, uh, now that being said, Bigelow's kind of gone through her career. She's probably made all of her movies. She's probably made for less than most of her peers had to make them. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and, but so, but I think that's why you get something so close hewn and real feeling as the hurt locker, you know, because yeah. she can do that and 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 do it scaled down. Yeah. Now, I got a question for you. The 80s produced some wonderful vampire films. Some 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 truly wonderful vampire films. Have you got any particular favorites? The top, I mean, the the favorite for me, now favorite being the one I love the most, uh, is Fright Night. It probably always will be Fright Night. About eighty five percent of that is Roddy McDowell. Yeah. Uh, I think though that the vampire, co- I mean, it's my favorite to the point that I have to sit and think about other ones. However, I th- this is right up there, and in some ways, in a, d- a given day, I might say this is the better movie. But Fright Night is just so, you know, it, the nostalgia kicks in for sure there. I do think that Chris Aranda makes a great vampire. I love oh. I love the special effects. I think they're some of the best of the 80s for that kind of special effect, yeah. barring, you know, American Werewolf in London. Um, I also really love Life Force. And, of course, <laughs> 99% Really, of Nathan? Is, is there a particular reason why? There's two. <laughs> uh, I, I, but I, that is, but, but Tilda May aside, that is a very strange movie that there's, that, that has a weird aura to it also, you know. Can you imagine Toby Hooper sat there going, so, and he's there with, you know, the Golden Globus guys who, you know, God bless them. The oar, their oars weren't fully in the water at the best of times. <laughs> That's an excellent way to put it. So, you know, <laughs> so, I, yeah, I've got this idea. We're going to have a naked alien vampire. Sold! <laughs> and at one point, she's going to be played by Patrick Stewart to show yes! how much of a thespian he truly is. Yes! <laughs> what do you think of that movie? <laughs> well, I, I love Life Force. It is just, I love it. It's insane. It is totally, totally insane. It, 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 at times, it's just incoherent. Um, it kind of, I don't know. It kind of works in its own weird way. Oh, like you does. talk about feeling like a dream. That movie shouldn't work at all. And even the even the stuff where she's walking around, dude, it's not like there isn't actual plot happening. I mean, she's stunning, but some of the special effects are good too. And it's just such a so weird. Uh, how about you? How about you for favorites? Of oh, the I, I mean, I've got. I mean. Of course, Lost Boys has got to be in there. Yeah, Lost Boys is a, is a given. Yeah, I love Lost Boys too. I mean, you mentioned Fright Night, but one of my you know one of my other favorites is Vamp. With Vamp, Grace Jones, I like Vamp. Yeah, which is again, just it's just the campus thing ever. Um, I love it. I think it's just it's just brilliant. And you and I have probably seen all the way down the chain to like uh, uh, to Die For. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> however, for. one of my real favorites. Um, is my best friend as a vampire. I like that one too. It's yeah. so much fun. It's so much fun. It's got a great soundtrack. 
Uh, yeah, I like it. And I mean, and I like like the once bitten and, you know, even even love at first bite. Those are not horror. Oh, vampires. God, I love love at first bite. Yeah. Um, do you remember? And it might have been the 90s. There were two. uh there were there were I think there were a couple of them. It was Graveyard Shift, I believe it. Not not the Stephen King one, but there was uh, was any a vampire that was like a taxi driver or something. Or I might be making this movie up. I think there were a uh, Graveyard Shift was another uh, vampire series. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, there is that one. Um, um, Innocent Blood is another favorite of mine. Yeah, Innocent Blood was like the early '90s, but I I will never forget the scene of of uh, Robert Loggia eating Don Rickles, drinking yeah. Don Rickles. Really, is what's happening in that scene. See again, but. how do you pitch that? How you, how do you pitch that? <laughs> that was John Landis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> um, but oh, and then if you get those really weird, like, is it a vampire movie or not? The vamp- vampires kiss with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> That's, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not putting that one up as one of my favorites. I'm just simply mentioning it exists. It's an insane film. It when he's ins- running through the street, I I think I had thought that I had always seen that full movie, and then recently uh, a buddy was like, "Oh, we should we should talk about Vampire's Kiss," and we were talking about it, and I sat down and I watched it again. And I'm like, I have almost no. It was like you know uh, Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. Like I have no memory of this place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. What's happening here? When he's running through the streets with fake vampire teeth and screaming, "I'm a vampire!" It's just <laughs> that moment. People who think Nicolas Cage has gotten weirder over time don't understand Nicolas Cage. <laughs> no, I have not sat down and watched Vampire's Kiss because no. it is just one cocaine-fueled shambles of a film, and it's wonderful. It yeah, is it wonderful. Is. It's, for a, it's it. a fun movie. I do like the '80s vampires. I don't know if there were any particular ones that were that bad to me. I mean. Unless you can bring one up, I don't. Uh... Um, no, I mean, I, I'm even really fond. I mean, this is '90s. I'm even fond of Fright Night Two. Oh, I like. Yeah, well, actually, Fright Night Two was the '80s, like '88 or '89. Was it '88? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I like Fright Night Two. I forgot that it happened there. And uh, yeah, I like it. Julie Carmen. Yeah. Yeah. I liked, uh, yeah. Uh, John Grease. All that. All of that. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Didn't? Did I like it as much as the first one? No, but I still I still quite enjoy it. Do you remember one from the early '90s? I think it was called like "To Sleep with a Vampire." Oh, I think it might have had a different name in the UK. Yeah, maybe because that's a bad title, or I might have made that title up. <laughs> but there was or "Sleeping with a Vampire." I mean, it had it had what I can only describe as a USA Up All Night title. But uh, oh, um... I'm trying to find it now. But this, uh, but I, I think what's interesting about Near Dark is with all these other weirdo movies, I found it's To Sleep with a Vampire from 93. And it has uh, Scott Valentine. It's, uh, he's a vampire. Yeah, I remember it being very kind of low budget, but not, but also kind of interesting. But again, the 90s vampires were sort of, um, you know, there was another one called Dance of the Damned, I think, from right at the end of the 80s. And that's where you started to get more, where they they were trying to kind of cash on on like the erotic thriller that's aspect. That's right, right yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I kind of remember it being. I remember seeing it on the shelves, uh, in the video store, and going, uh, that's the... "Don't know if I can get this one past." Uh, the... Yeah, <laughs> I might be pushing this one a little too far. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, there was one in the nineties. Or maybe it was in the late '80s, where where they I guess try to cash in on the warlock angle. They had Julian Sands as a vampire, oh, yes. but he was like a librarian vampire, and it was almost torture to sit through. <laughs> yes. Now, coming back to Nia Dark. So, 
wrapping this bad boy up, what are your what are your final thoughts on Near Dark? Um, and in queue at the Undead Wookiee, we do put the scores, you know, the scores on the doors. Where would you come on on this? With one being the lowest and ten being the highest? Man, it's it's pretty high for me. So uh, there's there's one more element I want to talk about in a minute, but we can. Uh, I would there's one element that's keeping it maybe from being as high as it could be. Okay, this is like an eight point five for me, very close to a nine. Yeah. Uh, and then I also, re, you know, I was also getting a bit of a Joe R. Lansdale feel as I was watching this movie. Uh, to some of the way the movie was handled. I mean, it doesn't go quite as quirky as he does, and he's an yeah. author, obviously, not a filmmaker. But, you know, it was ahead of its time. I love it. I I feel like I need to watch it more often than I do, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it would be, I, they need a better Blu-ray release. So I'm going to go 8.5. I think it's a must-see, really, for for fans of, of horror and for vampires and really for fans of action films, particularly see how that style developed. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. For me... Um, the fact that it's got Tangerine Dream does put it up to a nine. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that says more about me than anything else. But that's a good soundtrack. It really, that is at least like one fourth of the movie. Yeah. You know, we haven't talked enough of, much about it, but it is a movie about ambiance and it creates that ambiance perfectly. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is very, very much. Um, it's a film that I, that I, that my appreciation grows every time I watch it. I'm a massive fan of Catherine Bigelow. I think she is a tremendous director. Tremendous director. Um, and I think what you've got here is a cast at the top of their game. Really, really on it. Um, and it's just, it, 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 it's a great film. Just a great film. Um, and I, you know, I love it. Nathan, my friend, we thank you so much for being on. Um, Can we talk about the blood transfusion? I... <laughs> can, we, can we for a second <laughs> it it doesn't work <laughs> it doesn't i just yeah it doesn't it doesn't work <laughs> it just doesn't it doesn't in any way shape or form and i do think that is the one thing that stops it from being a 10 for me or even a yeah, 9. That's where it probably, and they don't even try to explain it much and like what was tim thomerson's job like I thought he was just a farmer, but then, like, he can he do blood transfusions. Yeah. He's a vet. Okay, vet that's it. slash so, farmer. <laughs> so he knows how to, to cure vampirism. If it was that easy. But, yeah. But I love the fact, you know, that they just fin and, but, I mean, the ending is quite ambiguous as well. Because it's the, just a freeze frame. And it's like whether or not she wanted to be cured. That's uh, true. They, yeah, but they could have hold. I think that's one of the things. They don't hold some of those notes enough. There's those character notes I could yeah. have done with a little more of that. But then yeah, I love the test. It's not like, let's put your hand like, it's like, let me open the barn door. Yeah. And just let the light <laughs> flood in to see if you're okay. Yeah. She exploded. It didn't work. Whoops. <laughs> Dad, it happened oh. again. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the 8.5 for me. And I, I know that's all down to the writing. I kind of, you know, uh, there's that one moment where you kind of wish that, okay, if you're, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, be cutthroat with the rest of this movie. Let's not do the blood transfusion. Yeah. <laughs> so, Nathan, my friend, where can the good people find you when you are well, not, you can... not lurking here? But I'm not lurking. And, uh, hey, I'm happy to lurk anytime if you want me back. Hey, you are welcome anytime. The door is wide open, my friend. 
So, you know, with the sun streaming right in, just kick that bad boy open, throw a blanket over your head and wall strike in. (laughs) Thanks. And and same to you. You know, we had we had you and uh, Peter back on uh, at Christmas time to talk Silent Night, Deadly Night, which (laughs) which was great fun and has had my children because I was putting that theme music at the start of the episode. My children walk around singing that song. (laughs) Santa's watching. But yeah, so you can find us over at the Phantom Galaxy where we have that episode and an, an awesome episode that w- you did for us where you read Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad by M.R. James. That was great fun. I had a lot of great feedback on that. Oh, thank and you. Uh, we talk science fiction, fantasy and horror over there. We do movies. We do talk about books. We just started a, a series on the X-Files. Oh. Uh, and and it, that's that's actually really people are really responding to that. Um, which is interesting, you know, and, and going back and watching it just reminds me, The X-Files is a show that for me kind of flamed out a little bit towards yeah. the end, but, and then for a few more seasons after that, <laughs> but it, you, when you go back, you really get to see how good, not unlike here with Near Dark, how good it really is and how much it was really kind of ahead of its time and even pioneering, you know, well, I you just stepping st- stone. I just started rewatching it from the very beginning yeah. uh, and I'm up to season four now. And I've just finished the the home episode. Oh, nice, nice. Well, if we can catch up to you, we can have you. <laughs> oh God! We have a three. A, we have a three hour episode about the first season. We recorded two hours of season two and realized we were only fifteen episodes in. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, but it's, it's some of these episodes. They're really, really good. Like uh, home, for instance. I mean, you can. That's a movie, really, right? Yeah, that's an, yeah, absolutely. It's wrong. That's an hour end. movie or a forty five minute movie. Uh, that's as, as effective as most things you see in a theater. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you can check us out there. I've, we've got, uh, it's become a Russian nesting doll of podcasts. Even though it's really <laughs> only one podcast. We do Bill Van Vegels, my co-host over there. We have a lot of great stuff. Dave Becker is sometimes uh, my co-host. We're doing the animated, uh, or the illustrated fan over there where we talk animated films and we, we just uh, uh, recorded one we'll have out soon. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. We'd invite you to, to come on over and check it out. And uh, we're looking forward to having uh, Hugh. Uh, Hugh, we've been talking about yeah. wanting to do an episode about uh, virtual reality movies <laughs> from the 90s, which I think would be awesome fun. Absolutely. You like, Listen, you just whistle and I shall be there, my lad. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you so much. This was so much oh. fun. And I was so happy to uh, check out Near Dark again. And I hope we get a proper release soon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nathan, my friend, thank you so much for being on. And I'm sure you'll be back very, very soon. Take care, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Okay, I hope you really enjoyed that one. Um, I'm so glad that I've been able to get this one out to you now. Um, such a good episode. And Near Dark is such a. Such a wonderful, layered film to be discussing. Um, and Nathan is going to be back sooner rather than later. Um, so I'm very, very excited to have him back on the show. And we, I think we're going to be talking some... Uh, some uh, I think it's going to be some Italian horror, actually, which is always good. So all that is left for me to say on this bonus episode, in the immortal words of Count Duckula, good night out there. Whatever you are.